Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Religion Prof Podcast. I'm thrilled to have Professor Helen Bond, who's head of school as well as professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, still currently a part of Europe, and uh, the author of a number of books on uh, not only the historical figure of Jesus, but also Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate. But one that I particularly know her through and have come to know well is uh, her the Historical Jesus, A Guide for the Perplexed, which I've used with much satisfaction and with, I think, great success from the perspective of students in my course on the historical Jesus. And this past semester, I was teaching that course again and using the textbook. And so uh, Helen and I found ourselves talking about podcasting and things like that. And I suggested that it would be interesting to get some questions from students and uh, see if we can get some conversation going since my, my first plan, which was to sort of Zoom or Skype uh, Helen into the class itself, uh, was not going to work very smoothly because of time difference and scheduling issues and other things. So I'm delighted to have this chance to have this uh, conversation. Helen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this and for uh, being part of this today. Thanks, James. It's good to be here. So one of the questions that students ask that I think will uh, give us a nice sort of intro into things is what it's like to dive so deeply into research about figures like Pilate, Caiaphas, etc., as a New Testament scholar. Right? <laughs> uh, we, we noted in my class, uh, in our discussions, that really very few of us uh, who are new, working primarily on New Testament uh, research these key historical figures in their own right in the way that you have. And so students were very interested to hear more about uh, what that's been like, uh, how you ended up doing that, and how doing so has had an impact on your work on Jesus. Yeah, I suppose that that's true. I mean, I hadn't really thought about it in the, the, that terms, but you're right. I mean, I've always been attracted to the other characters. I've, I've worked on Barabbas and Simon of Cyrene and, and some of the really tiny ones as well. And, and Herod, too, has always had a fascination for me. I think, as much as anything, I'm always drawn to the idea that, that characters have lots of dimensions. And I always, I always wonder about the other side of people and what they were really like. And of course, we're so familiar with the Christian story, which is obviously about Jesus, but brings in these other characters, almost as stereotypes or caricatures. So for Pilate, for example, is sort of a, a, a symbol of Rome and uh, Caiaphas becomes this sort of very negative um, picture that, that really has all of that sort of anti-Jewishness that the gospel writers are wanting to convey and all of their animosity towards the, the Jewish authorities sort of get plonked on top of Caiaphas. So he becomes this very sort of negative caricature. And I always just wondered really what, what they were like, uh, what else we know about them. And, and the fascinating thing is that they have left some level of um, remains in the historical sources. Not very much, of course, but by the standards of most ancient historic, historical characters, we actually know a reasonable amount about, um, about Pilate in particular and a little bit about Caiaphas and of course, we know quite a lot about Roman prefects and um, high priests. So I think, I, I think it was all of those things that made me think, well, what were they like really? And of course, you're never going to be able to do a proper biography. You can never talk about the psychology of these people. But I think you can put together a, 
a better portrait than the one that's that's usually just sort of bandied about and um and i also think that if you're trying to understand jesus really we've got so little to go on that we need all the help we can get and so if we can try and understand why someone like Pilate and someone like Caiaphas wanted to put him to death and what the reasons might have been for that, and assuming that they're not just horrible, spiteful, cruel people, but you know, people who have good reasons for doing things, however misguided we may particularly think they are now, um, I think that's really interesting in terms of a different perspective on Jesus. I mean, in the time of Jesus, of course, there would have been loads and loads of people who thought that Jesus was misguided and thought that Jesus was wrong. Good, decent, honourable people. People like Paul, perhaps, before his conversion. So I always think it's a, it's a pity that those voices have been lost from a historical point of view. You know, it would be really fascinating to know what, what the detractors of Jesus thought. Mm. Yes, I've, I've often you know, sort of directed attention um, in classes I've taught in other contexts uh, to Judas, uh, who is a, a, a sort of popular figure. Well, he's a very unpopular figure in uh, many circles, <laughs> but he's a popular figure to focus on in uh, particularly in cinematic and, um, of course, musical retellings of the story of Jesus. You know, Jesus Christ Superstar is you know, one of many examples. Uh, just because it's always seemed to me that the way that one makes sense of you know, what what were Judas's motives, and of course we can't get at the psychology of ancient figures. Even Jesus uh, is a challenge, and maybe impossible. Mm -hmm. Never mind uh, other figures about whom we have even less information. But trying to make sense of why someone would act in a certain way in relation to Jesus, you know, the the detractors, the betrayers, the executors, the condemners, uh, whoever they are in the story, I think tells us a lot about how. Yeah, it, it at least tells us about how the person who's trying to make sense of Jesus is making sense of Jesus, because these these figures give us the uh, the other side of the story, as it were. And you need that in order to make sense of Jesus himself. Yeah, that's right. I, I think, you know, I mean, Jesus was somebody who inspired very strong emotions in people. Some wanted to follow him, even die for him, and some wanted to put him to death. And and I think we, we often forget that, that second lot of people, those ones who wanted to put him to death. What was it about him that, that they found so threatening, so worrying? And yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right about Judas. I think, I think if you could understand what Judas was doing, perhaps more so than any of those other characters, you know, an insider who presumably understood what Jesus was about and yet still was willing to betray him, that would be a really fascinating story but unfortunately i mean mark the oldest account just says he went and did it it's almost chilling and you know scary the fact that he gives no motivation he just went and did it so um yeah it's 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 begging for for psychological adornment but uh, mark himself doesn't give it to us yeah, and I, I wonder if if the other gospel authors are actually you know sort of responding to that giving early evidence of sort of dissatisfaction um, even even among ancient authors who tend not to, I mean, they certainly don't psychologize in the way that we would, but trying to make sense of motives, trying to make sense of reaction, you know, whether it's uh, what Matthew adds about Judas's remorse or what John adds about, you know, sort of love of money and things like that, mm -hmm. uh, trying to make sense of these figures in various ways. Um, and of yeah. course, they do that with Pilate and Caiaphas to some extent as well. 
Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. And, and you know, that idea in, in Luke and John that, that Satan enters into Judas, it's, it's the only way they can make sense of, of this terrible act of betrayal is that he just was made to do it by Satan. Mm. But even that, I think it is, is an attempt to, to explain how it could possibly happen. Yes. So how do, you, how do you feel that working on these figures has perhaps changed your perspective on Jesus? And how does work on Jesus influence uh, your work on these figures? And one question I had is, you know, just curious about uh, to what extent maybe you've interacted more with the wider realm of, you know, the wider array of historians and uh, fields of history than sometimes we do when we focus on Jesus, where there's so much being written and so much related to the New Testament that sometimes we, we don't either get invited to or try to attend, you know, conferences related to the study of Judaism or ancient Roman history or things like that. But I imagine that working on figures like Pilate or Caiaphas, uh, there might be more opportunities for interaction and um, it might uh, connect one with, with uh, other areas of history that uh, in New Testament we tend to draw on, but don't always have a, have a dialogical kind of interaction with. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. And, and that's, I think, what I found one of the attractions anyway of working on on Pontius Pilate. I mean, I, I wrote my PhD on Pontius Pilate. So my book on Pilate is really a, a revised version of my PhD. And, and that meant that I had to spend huge amounts of time reading um, stuff written by classicists and going to conferences um, run by classicists and um, a large body of our evidence for, well, everything to do with Judea really, but um, particularly for um, Judea under the Romans and, um, you know, that, 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 that whole kind of political and social um, makeup of, of first century Judea comes from Josephus. So I spent a lot of time with old Josephus, mm. um, come to like him <laughs> a lot, even though he's a slippery character. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, when, if I go to the SBL, then I, I quite like to go to um, stuff on Josephus or archaeology or, or things on the verges um, with our discipline and classics, simply because I, I do tend to see, certainly what I do, as a, as a subset of classics. I mean, I think you have to understand how the whole Roman world is um, working, and, and I don't claim to do that at all, but I'm, I'm sort of aspiring to know more about the Roman world so that I can understand how how one provincial prefect fits into all of that um, and, you know, what his values would have been, what the constraints on him would have been. Um, and, and as you say, similarly with, with Caiaphas, um, trying to understand how the priesthood worked is actually really fascinating. I mean, that's, and there's all sorts of different um, sources and stuff for that, but um, it's you, you often don't get the luxury of just sitting around and, and reading loads and loads of books on how the, the priesthood sort of operated and how it was set up and you know and all that stuff about the temple too. I mean, really interesting um, in terms of the rituals and what was going on and what people thought about the high priest and you know was it positive, was it negative? Um, often there's there's not huge amounts of of evidence but it's just sort of picking it from here and there so so yeah i suppose it's it's stuff on the borders of new testament that we think of as background and generally just kind of you know read a little bit but i've i've really enjoyed trying to 
trying to immerse myself in that. And, and, and I think inevitably when you come to the Gospels, um, having read all of that stuff, you do sort of see it in slightly different terms. Yes, and our, our tendency to treat these things as background, things that we just, you know, dabble in and draw on, but never really dive into in their own right, um, sometimes does, you know, negatively impact our field. Um, I think it's safe to say that, you know, if we were able to spend more time, uh, most of us, um, people, you're, you're the exception, but I'm referring to myself and others mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, often spend more of our time in New Testament, uh, if, if we had a broader uh, array of the sort of classical background, uh, ancient Jewish history. I'm sure that some of the mistakes that have been made in our field might have been avoided um, over the years. Well, classicists can make mistakes too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I don't think we should beat ourselves up too much, but um, yeah. yeah. And, and there's, there's more even about Jesus than uh, we can manage to uh, really uh, find the time to read, never mind everything else that we, we find interesting and would love to. That is the trouble with um, anything on the historical Jesus, that, that just trying to read the last 10 years worth of stuff would be a, a full-time job. It would take you several years just to get through it, especially if you're trying to read stuff in French and German as well. Um, and it, it's it's just absolutely kind of grown into epic proportions that you can really never read anything. And and of course, some of uh, some of it is is really good and really new stuff. Some of it isn't particularly, and it's um, it's very difficult to try and keep up to date with everything. Yeah, you often have to read quite substantially in a book to realize that it wasn't worth reading in the first place. Yeah, that's the trouble. <laughs> Luckily, people don't seem to be writing such big books anymore. Yeah, but. yeah. although I've, I've long thought that, you know, there's a reason, you know, well, I'm glad we have, you know, more article-length tre- you know, treatments of matters related to the historical Jesus. But I've, I've often been struck by the fact that people have tended to write books on the subject. And I think there's a good reason for that because it's very hard to make sense of one detail in isolation from a, an overall construction of Jesus' life. Yeah, that's right. And you have to sort of set out, you know, this is how I'm understanding this and this is how I'm understanding that. And, and actually that, that was one of, the, um, one of the most interesting things I've found for me personally about writing the book about Jesus, that when I was writing about Pilate or Caiaphas or somebody else, um, I would only need a certain amount of the Jesus story and it didn't all have to make sense. Um, (laughs) The great thing about, for me anyway, about writing a book on Jesus is that all of my other decisions in all sort of other aspects had to make sense. Mm -hmm. They had to work together. So, I mean, for example, something like, um, I'd always quite been attracted to the idea that um, that uh, exorcisms and the idea of sort of spirit possession was was much stronger in um, in places where they were um, occupied, you know, where they're o- occupying forces, and it was this inability to speak um, that that created this sense of, um, of, of well, I suppose, sort of mental health issues, which were described in the ancient world as some kind of demon possession. Um, but as I kind of worked through um, trying to put together a plausible sense of first century Galilee, I actually found myself less uh, taken with the whole sort of 
very strong anti-imperial um, idea that that um, some people have had. And, and so once you start to make adjustments in one place, then you have to kind of make your adjustments elsewhere too. So, so I did find that an, an interesting um, aspect of, of pulling everything together. Yeah, well, we'll hopefully have time to come back to uh, exorcisms and miracles and you know those kind of things from you know and engaging with the, that or or setting them aside from a historian's perspective. Uh, but because we started with uh, Caiaphas and Pilate, I I think it would make sense to move next to another question that my students had that also is one that I'm very interested in and which relates to another of those figures who gets relatively brief mention in the Gospels and yet is interesting and deserving of more attention than they've sometimes gotten in their own right. Uh, and of course, I'm referring to John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. uh, so my students were fascinated by the idea, which you, know, you introduced them to uh, so helpfully in the book, uh, that some thought John was the Messiah, perhaps, uh, that uh, he may have been a more influential and um, a more influential figure in his time than we might have realized based on the New Testament accounts, that he may have been at least a, a somewhat different figure than the New Testament portrays him as. Um, and of course, I've uh, recently finished, been wrapping up a project related to uh, the translation of the Mandaean Book of John. Oh. Uh, and so I'm actually hoping to have as one of my next book projects uh, something focused on John the Baptist as a historical figure. So I'm very interested in uh, talking about this as well. Uh, but is, is John the Baptist another figure where to the extent that we can figure him out, it helps us make sense of Jesus. And uh, is he in any way similar to or different from figures like uh, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, uh, when it comes to how a historian might approach them and the sources that are available? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I've, I've never been particularly attracted to, to writing anything on John <laughs> Baptist. And I, perhaps part of that is that I think you would just be looking at pretty much the same sources as for Jesus. It's not sort of a whole new area. I mean, obviously Josephus is the, is the main one to look at here. And I think that that's what I find really fascinating about him, that, that Josephus gives him a fairly long write-up and he's, he's sort of neutral to positive. I mean, he's positive enough about him to, to record the fact that quite a lot of people thought that um, Herod Antipas's defeat by the Arabian king Aretas IV was because it was kind of divine vengeance because Herod had had put John the Baptist to death. So I think I think Josephus is is fairly positive about him. He presents him as a, a prophet, perhaps a sort of anointed prophet, who's um, who's well, I mean, you know, sort of attracting lots of people. And um, certainly in the Gospels, we have this idea that he's announcing the end of the world and God's, God's coming reign. Um, and it, it does seem to me, I mean, the, the difficulty is that we don't know what Josephus actually wrote about Jesus, because obviously most people think that that passage about Jesus in Antiquities 18 has been um, altered in some shape or form. It's been rewritten, it's been added to, it's maybe even been um, had bits taken out. So we don't know how much sort of relative um, sort of airtime Josephus would have given to each of them. You know, was his passage on Jesus really shorter as it now is than 
John. And I would guess that it probably was um, because Josephus does seem quite positive towards John. And I think, I think in his day, John was probably the more influential character. And I think that's probably why early Christians were quite keen to, to link Jesus up to, to John at first. Um, you know, people sometimes think that that's a strange thing to do, but I think it wouldn't have been a strange thing if John was the better known, if John was generally held as a true prophet in fairly high esteem, then you can sort of understand why Christians wanted to, to link their man to John to say, well, he was a disciple of John's. Um, and of course, quite early on, certainly by the time of the Gospels, Christians are casting John as a sort of Elijah figure. He comes and restores all things, as Malachi um, predicted, and then Jesus comes and um, he's the Messiah. So you can sort of see why John was a useful character to bring into the story at first. But then, of course, um, I think he probably becomes a little bit problematic later. Um, you have that passage in Acts about Apollos, who only knows about the, um, the baptism of John and so needs a bit more teaching. And people have, have quite often detected some kind of a animosity. I mean, not too strong, but something there in John's gospel, maybe in, the, in those opening chapters where John is so keen to show that John the Baptist is not the light, he's not the Messiah, you know, he's, um, he's only bearing witness to Jesus. So possibly what was a useful connection early on maybe becomes a little bit more difficult later, particularly as followers of John the Baptist, we know, continued well into the second century and beyond. Um, and, and maybe, you know, there was a need sort of later on to say, well, actually, our guy, Jesus, is, is much greater than John, and just to make that really clear. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the difficulty is, is that we can only kind of guess from these texts, but until we find the genuine passage that Josephus wrote about Jesus, and you know, maybe one day we might, um, and then there would be all sorts of really interesting things we could do. Yeah, indeed. I think it's, you know, when we think about the fact that people turn up even outside of sort of the region of Palestine uh, who have some connection with John the Baptist and yeah. baptism and things like that, uh, we get a sense of his sort of geographical reach. Uh, the reactions to him from, you know, political and religious powers indicate something of his, uh, his the impact of his message and the concern about him. Uh, we've mentioned, you know, how uh, Judas, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate are sometimes depicted in uh, retellings of the gospel story and in movies, you know, there's anti-Semitism, things like that. Mm -hmm. Do you think that maybe the, uh, the depictions of John the Baptist as this guy who looks like he's completely off his rocker, his hair <laughs> has not been, he's not done anything with his hair for uh, probably several years. Ever. Uh, <laughs> out, if ever. And he's dressed in a big, you know, he's dressed in skins and he's, he's shouting and he's, you know. And hideous and, food. <laughs> and hideous food. Well, there's, there's some, there's some evidence for that though, you know, whether it's what, figuring out what it meant and uh, figuring out whether that was a good thing and a tasty delicacy or a, you know, asceticism or a bit of both uh, could be tricky for those of us who, uh, well, might do the honey uh, less fond generally of the locusts and things. Yeah, like that. I don't think I go for locusts. <laughs> but it's that sort of figure is yeah that as he's as he's often depicted, or at least in terms of the the way we interpret such a figure when we see 
them on TV or on the uh, cinematic screen is not someone that politicians and religious leaders would be paying attention to. And so is there a sense in which we need to think of John as, in fact, much more of a, a teacher, somebody whose disciples then go and stir up trouble in other places and spread his message? Um, does he have a network? Uh, and you know, does, uh, does study of other figures and the broader you know, Greco-Roman as well as Jewish history you know, give us a framework within which we might understand how someone like John was making the impact that he was? Yeah, I mean, you can only sort of infer and hypothesize, but um, I mean, yeah, yes, it's certainly the case that the, I mean, John's gospel suggests that that John has disciples of his own. Um, and, and, and that does seem to be very likely, um, given, as you say, the fact that um, the message spreads well beyond the borders of, um, of Judea and Perea and anywhere around that. Um, I mean, there's also, I, I think also an interesting thing in terms of sort of the overwhelming view, the modern view, and also, I mean, it, you, you get it already in the Gospels, this view that, that John was the forerunner and that John is inextricably linked to Jesus and that John was, was preaching about Jesus from the very beginning. Um, I'm not so sure about that. There's, there's certainly no evidence from Josephus that, that John was... Um, saying that uh, a messianic figure is going to come after me. Now, you could say, well, there's all sorts of reasons why Josephus doesn't particularly like mentioning messiahs very much. Um, but it seems far more likely to me that as an apocalyptic prophet, John was saying, God is going to come, you know, pre prepare yourself, repent, um, go through the waters, um, do this baptism thing, because God is going to come very soon and sort you out. Um, and so I, that's why I think in his day, he was probably, um, I mean, he, he doesn't need Jesus on, on that reading. He's not, he's not saying there's a greater one coming after me. That's, that's very much the, um, the way that the gospel writers are linking the two men. Um, I also think he probably did have far more teaching. And in a way, I think it's sort of the magnetic effect of Jesus that, um, you know, one of the interesting things that's always mentioned is that um, St. Paul hardly says anything about the historical Jesus and there's not very much in terms of teaching but by the time you get to Mark who's only a couple of decades or so later um, you've got lots of teaching lots of activity and the chances are that that some of that material that is now particularly the sayings that are now um, ascribed to Jesus may well have come from John in the first place I mean if they're talking about the coming of God the coming of a kingdom um, all of that may have come from John just as easily as Jesus. So, so I think it's this, I mean, of course, who knows? I can't prove any of that, but mm. I think it seems quite likely to me that, um, that John did say something. You know, he didn't just baptize people. There, there's a whole load of teaching that either has been lost or I think more likely has been kind of rewritten and um, ascribed to Jesus instead. Yeah, that's, it's, it's very interesting that you say that because I've actually been thinking about that uh, quite a bit uh, as I've thought about uh, just the influence that a, a mentor has you know, mm -hmm. on their student, that you know, their teaching very often reflects a lot of uh, what their mentor, their, their, their own teacher had been saying. And of course, you know, the Gospel of Matthew seems to uh, acknowledge that when it 
places on the lips of John the Baptist, the, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also wondered about uh, the, you know, the depiction in the, the gospel of John when, you know, of Jesus talking about the temple being destroyed. That, you know, at that time, you know, within the chronology of John's gospel, John has not yet been put in prison. And so would that have been basically Jesus delivering John's message rather than, you know, him sort of offering his own? Uh, oh, I see what you mean. Yes, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I mean, John just has such a different chronology there, though, doesn't mm. he? Because yeah. that, it's important for him to have both men operating at the same time so that John the Baptist can be um, the witness and can keep saying, behold, the Lamb of God. Right. Whereas yeah. for the other gospel writers, they need to get John out of the way because he's Elijah and he's restored all things and that's all done. So it really yeah. is difficult to know um, which version mm. to, to pick there. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting. I hadn't really thought about him, um, the level of agreement. I mean, people often sort of st- stress the differences. You know, he, Jesus is a party animal, whereas uh, John <laughs> is very, you know, um, <laughs> well, you wouldn't want to go to that locust party anyway, would you? <laughs> um, you know, the differences in, in terms of, of the way that they go about their ministry. But um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly the, the apocalyptic outlook and, um, and, and many things. I think it's, it's just very difficult to know um, how much is, is common to both men. Mm. Yeah, well, I will be spending a lot of time uh, speculating and probably changing my mind over and over again about John the Baptist. And, uh, oh, well, I look forward to reading these it. Kinds of things. Um, yeah, and I won't comment on locust parties because I've never been to one and I don't like to <laughs> judge them until I've tried them. Um, but yeah, now that I think about it, it's interesting that it didn't occur to me until we were actually talking that my students top three, you know, my, th- there are three actual questions, and then there were two other topics that they said it would be interesting to hear you talk about. But the third one on their list was Joseph, as in um, Joseph and Mary, uh, Joseph's influence on Jesus' ministry. And of course, your initial response to that was, well, there's not much to talk about, which of course is true. But he's actually another figure like John and like Caiaphas and like Pontius Pilate where, you know, makes a brief appearance in the gospels. And if we knew more and we wish we knew more, but if we knew more, we might find that it illuminates our understanding of Jesus, of his time, things like that. Um, Is it helpful when we have so little information to speculate about somebody like Joseph, you know, the, uh, the father of Jesus um, or, when we have that little information, should we just steer clear of it because we're inevitably going to do more projecting than discovering? Yeah, I think the second of those. <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, I did laugh a bit when I when I saw that that was one of the questions on the list yeah. because I mean we we know nothing about about Joseph. I mean it's interesting that that the texts do all call him Joseph. There's no sort of alternative name, so that does suggest a, a good early Christian memory that his name was Joseph, that he probably was a carpenter, the same trade as, as Jesus has, or, you know, however you translate that carpenter, workman, stonemason, whatever it was. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that our earliest gospel, Mark, says doesn't give his father's name at all. He mentions Mary and brothers and sisters and gives the brothers' names, but nothing about the father everything in Mark is directed towards the heavenly father. It's, um, it's God who 
who is very much in that sort of father position from from the moment of what we call the baptism which i think is more of an adoption scene where the the spirit enters into him jesus becomes this sort of spirit possessed son of god and um and that's really what what mark wants to tell us then of course later on we get the birth stories and you there's sort of more of a need for a a human father to at least be mentioned in there but um it is interesting that, that there's no, even in those other Gospels, there's no mention of him during the ministry, which may mean that he had died. Um, certainly the Proto-Evangelium of James from the second century suggests that he was an, an elderly man. Um, and that, again, might fit with this idea that, um, you know, he was an elderly man even when Jesus was born. And so that might fit with the idea of him dying um, before Jesus was ready to start out. But I think one of the difficulties there is that once you start thinking about Joseph dying, perhaps early, you start thinking about Jesus as a young man who grows up without a father figure. And then you might be sort of tempted to speculate on other young men who've grown up without father figures. But but all of that is just simply speculation. And, and even I think trying to, even if we knew for sure that Joseph had died early, trying to do any kind of psychology with ancient characters, I think is, is fraught with peril. Mm. Um, the ancient world was so different to ours in so many ways. And, and particularly I think in the, in the area of death, because people would routinely have died quite young um, and it's difficult to know whether the psychological effects would have been exactly the same or would they would there have been different circumstances. It's, it's so difficult to know how any of that would have played out that um, I think it's probably better to, <laughs> to leave poor old Joseph yeah. alone. But maybe more interesting things actually to talk about Mary, because we do know that she was there. And certainly there are Christian traditions that link her with um, with the ministry of Jesus and and even um, even Mark's gospel, which is not particularly positive towards Jesus's family, still has her there in the ministry trying to take him home. So so I do sometimes allow myself a, a little speculation on uh, what Mary's role in Jesus's development might have been. You know, did she put him on her knee and say, "Look at the lilies"? You know, they yeah. don't. <laughs> um again we're entirely in the realm of speculation but um but sometimes it's it's good fun yeah there's there's actually i'm trying to remember the name of the the movie that is really focused on mary but has mary telling jesus all these stories as a child which he then recycles in his own ministry and, oh really yeah well that's exactly what i mean you yeah. know the, and you know, interesting that in Luke's gospel, she's given the Magnificat. And, and, and so, again, I'm, I don't think there's any historical foundation to that. But it's, it's interesting to think in terms of Mary as the one who has this sort of social conscience that she might then pass on to her son in some form. Yeah. Well, the, stu the students uh, asked about, you know, the, one of their questions was about women in Jesus' time. And that's actually... Uh, a book project that is going to be less of a, an academic book and more for a general audience because it's going to have far too much speculation in it to uh, <laughs> uh, meet uh, meet the uh, criteria to be uh, scholarly as well as uh, fewer footnotes because I think the audience that it's likely to be of interest to is um, going to be less interested in, the, in those. But uh, about what Jesus learned from women uh, mm -hmm. throughout his uh, throughout his activity, 
uh, because it does seem to me that some of the interactions that we have, where oftentimes, you know, the, the typical Christian interpretation of the story is that Jesus is using a woman to illustrate a point that he always makes and would have made anyway. Uh, in fact, maybe some of those encounters are a bit more transformative. Um, and of course, Mary will be one of those uh, women that I'll speculate about uh, in that context. But yeah, the students' last two uh, topics, which they didn't give me any particular questions about, but were uh, women in Jesus' time and miracles in the historian. And of course, that last one is the one that we sort of touched on at the beginning and said we might come back to if there's time. And I had a lot of students who were coming to Jesus from uh, from some sort of faith perspective as at least important in their background and for some of them important for them personally. And so the kinds of things that uh, people like you and I say about miracles sometimes and say about the gospel traditions can be disconcerting for mm -hmm. some of those students. And so um, if either of those topics is of interest to, you know, sort of as we bring our conversation towards the, you know, towards the end, uh, women in Jesus' time or miracles in the history. <laughs> there, there are two yeah. big, huge questions. Yes, um, right. Well, I guess on the last of those, miracles, I mean, particularly because that's one of the things that my students struggle with too. I mean, they're very different topics in a way. I, mm. Women in the time of Jesus is something that I think is very refreshing and and um and and good particularly for, for for women studying this i mean they can be really energized by finding out that there's actually far more women in the tradition than than they thought whereas the whole thing about miracles i think is, mm -hmm. is as you say something that that can be very difficult for, for students coming to historical Jesus research um, for the first time. I, I do think, I mean, there's been a big change in, in sort of what's broadly still called third quest um, Jesus scholarship in that miracles are far more accepted nowadays than, you know, you read some stuff from, I don't know, the earlier part of the 20th century. And there's this sort of rationalist explanation that clearly miracles didn't happen. And, you know, we have to try and explain them. Um, I mean, the, the difficulty is that miracle by its nature is something that doesn't happen too often. It's something that, that defies the laws of nature. And so as a historian, you've no way, I mean, your normal way of, of saying whether something happened or not is to say, is it probable? Is it likely? But in the case of a miracle, you can't possibly do that because the whole, the whole point is that it's something that wouldn't normally happen. It's God's intervention in history. And so I think on one level, you can't possibly come to any kind of a historical conclusion or at least no historical conclusion that isn't completely really a, a story about whether you believe in God or not mm -hmm. and whether you believe that God can intervene in human affairs. But, but as a historian, I think you can, you can look at the effect of these things. And I think that's, that's what always strikes me that, um, that clearly people think that they have seen something um, and what, what's more, um, you know, opponents also, they don't say, what are you talking about? You know, clearly Jesus hasn't healed somebody. They say, yes, he has healed somebody, but he's done it by the power of Beelzebub, the devil, or, you know, evil spirits. He's just not acting with, um, with the power of God. And of course, in the ancient world too, there's, there's plenty of other healers. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's, there's the whole sort of a, a cult of Asclepius and people going to his shrines and, 
and actually being healed of very similar things. It's often complaints of the eyes or it's, um, you know, something to do with the limb and, um, and, and other Jewish healers too. And of course, Apollonius of Tyana um, in the first century as well. So, I mean, there are reports of other people who can do these things. And I suppose the question is, is Jesus different? Um, or do we say that all of these people could do something um, I mean, I, I think I tend towards the, the second of those. Um, clearly, clearly there was something happening in the cult of Asclepius too that people thought. Um, and, and, and I'm willing, as a historian, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think if I just say, well, no, that's clearly stupid. And they were clearly mm. you know, uneducated people who didn't know what they were talking about. I think that's the wrong way to approach these texts. I think these are intelligent people who knew what they thought they'd seen um, and, and believed it. And so as a historian, to some extent, I think I have to go along with that and try and explain what they thought they were seeing. Um, and I think that applies to Jesus too. Um, but I, I, I'm never going to be, be able to answer the, did it happen or did it not? I think that's the wrong question for historians to ask. I think they can just examine the sort of the nexus of questions and and um, ideas around these events. Yes, I think that's 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 a great way of putting it. Um, and certainly, you know, to the extent that we see people experiencing healing in religious traditions today, mm, uh, yeah. how one explains those things is a different sort of question. Lies outside the realm of history, but that people have these kinds of experiences um, is something that. I think historians need to be open to because we can, uh, it's not like we're, we're making an exception for something ancient and saying it was different or something like that. We can actually see similar kinds of phenomena today. It's the question of how one interprets them and if one has a particular theological view of what their significance is, that uh, the, 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 the thing that gets people into controversy more than the historical. In some yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right, and and also if you if you set aside the miracles in the Jesus tradition and say, well, I'm not going to even look at those because you know I I don't believe in miracles or they they must be wrong or they couldn't have happened. Um, I think you miss a huge part of um, the Jesus story, and and certainly I think the reason, at least at first, why Jesus got these huge crowds was was simply because he was well known as a healer, an exorcist, and you know, in those societies where you couldn't just go down to the doctors or the pharmacy, um, he would have, of course, he would have attracted huge crowds all looking for him to do things. Um, and I think that's, that's probably at the heart of his popularity, at, certainly at first. And, you know, they're not necessarily going to go out and hear a message, though, I mean, they might, but I think it's, I think it's the, the miracle tradition associated with him that's, that's certainly the, the most attractive thing about him as far as um, people who don't know much about him to start with were concerned. So, yeah, I, I think it does need to be at the very centre of, of Jesus's message. And, and also, I think the connection between miracle and the message, you know, the idea of healing and wholeness is what the kingdom of God is all about to some extent, too. So, um, so I, I do think miracles need to be there, but but to get too obsessed on did they happen or did they not is is never really going to get you very far. Yeah, well, I think I've, I feel like we should start to wrap things up there and probably bring our episode to an end since uh, I've taken up I think enough of <laughs> enough of your time for one day. Uh, but 
people sometimes ask, you know, doesn't podcasting take a lot of time, things like that. But conversations like these are the sorts of things that I, as, a, as an academic, uh, delight in having. I mean, I certainly feel that, you know, you've not only spoken in a, an interesting way to my students' questions, but uh, we had things come up in this conversation that have got me energized to uh, spend some more time working on that John the Baptist project and some other things <laughs> as well. And so, uh, Helen, thank you so much for making time to talk to me today and for uh, being on the podcast. Uh, it's, it's just been wonderful having this conversation with you. Well, lovely to talk to you too. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And to everyone who's been listening, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and bye for now. Mm-hmm.